Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're more embroiled in contemporary events than our goofy podcast about a seven-tier X-Men comic from 30 years ago probably has any right to be. But as always, we'll do our best to both entertain and educate as we tackle Excalibur number 121 with friends like these, spotlighting a sojourn to Israel with its nationalist hero, Sabra. Excalibur number 121 was originally published in June 19. And the creative team is Ben Robb on writing, Andrew Peepoy on pencils, Trevor Scott on inks, Kevin Tinsley on colors, Richard Starkings and Kifshaw on letters, and Frank Peteries and Jason White on editing. What do your characters represent? Well, the characters represent uh, a sort of a, a transcendent feeling that we, we all have inside us that uh, uh, we could do better. We want to do better. Uh, we haven't time to do better that uh, we can be the people that we lionize. Welcome to the final quartet of episodes on what once seemed like a never-ending journey to the end of Excalibur, but who are we? I'm sure you know, but just in case. I am Dr. Anne Papar, and my bag is sexy, gendery stuff in comics and pop culture. You can find me over at Sequential Scholars and Comics XF, and if you're in academia, go read the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics, of which I'm an editorial board member, a fact that I don't know if I've actually mm. mentioned on the pod before. Um, I'm also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager with ambitions to take on Jennifer Walters as a client in the very near future. I am joined, as always, by Mav. Are you excited about making it to the final four? I'm not excited about anything. It's finals time. This is the worst week of my life. I don't <laughs> want to be a teacher anymore. I've changed my mind. This whole, this whole professor thing, I've changed my mind. I'm out. <laughs> I'll feel better next week. Next Been week, there. grades will be in. But, like, literally, grades are due in, in like, 12 hours. Um, I'm just, oh, God. I, I hate this. Hi. <laughs> My name's Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. I, you know, I guess I'm a teaching professor of digital narrative interactive design, cultural studies, University of Pittsburgh. I host this show and another show called Vox Popcast. I'm in a great mood today. Great. <laughs> I'll be cheerier after after the introduction. I just had to get that off my chest. I'm, I'm just there. There's an onslaught of stuff that just happens in, you know, again, this last week of this night. Well, I guess the semester is technically over. We're in grading week. Grading week sucks. <laughs> I was gonna make some sort of onslaught joke, but I don't actually remember the yeah. details of like the latest. No. I, <laughs> I realized I said it on accident as I was saying it, and then I was just like, I don't 
like I and I same thing. I could make a joke, but all I remember is vaguely something about Professor Xavier and Magneto and you know, the costume was literally someone accidentally spilled like a whole jar full of 90s. And like, <laughs> yeah. that was <laughs> that's what they got. And then he came back for an annoying story about sexual politics that I hated. Anyway, let's not go down that rabbit hole. Let's get to the rest of our introductions. Andrew, how's your stamina at this point in our journey? Like a 1D4, I'd say. Uh, hello, I'm Dr. J. Andrew DeMann, a sequential scholar <laughs> of St. Jerome's University and of the Claremont Run, Subverting Gender in the X-Men, which was listed on Vulture.com's Holiday Hell Gift yeah. Guide for Books. You should purchase it for the loved one who wants to unwrap my pretentiousness this holiday season. It's what my <laughs> wife and kids get every year, and now it could be yours. <laughs> wow, the, what a poll quote. <laughs> if you interpret that correctly, it's not about his pretentiousness. It's just that every year he gives his, his wife and his yeah. two daughters <laughs> a copy of this book. This is what it, the, the cheapest dad well, in the world. From here, in on, out, from like, here on out, that's Happy the birthday! <laughs> Congratulations, you're 10. Here's a copy of the Claremont Run. Well, because you can Just give the like hard copy year. this year and the soft copy to cover the exactly. next year and the translation the year after that. You're set, Andrew. It. I love it. <laughs> Therapy and the weighty for your kids when they grow up. Well, if I end up coming to visit you over the holidays, Andrew, which we've been talking about, you better give me a physical copy. That's what I want for Christmas. Okay, deal. <laughs> We are very honored to be joined this week by a super smart doctor of comics and training in Gabrielle Lyle. Hello, Gabrielle. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you. And I'll give you an intro and then we'll get right into all of the awesome stuff that you get up to. So Gabrielle Lyle is a PhD candidate in history at Texas A&M University. Her dissertation, B'nai Borderlands, the development of Jewish communities in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands in the 20th century, examines connections between Judaism and the borderlands and the wider Jewish world. Her work has been supported by the Arizona Historical Society, the Texas Jewish Historical Society, and the Southern Jewish Historical Society. She is the recipient of Joseph and Eva R. Dave Fellowship at the American Jewish Archives, and her work featured in the Journal of South Texas. While Gabrielle's main research is currently on borderland Jewry, she is becoming increasingly involved with comic studies. Which of course, we want to talk to you about both of those things today. So before we get into anything more serious, though, let's start with your origin story, Gabrielle. Have you been a lifelong reader of comics? Has this been a more recent interest for you? Tell us about your comics origin story. Okay, so I'll start with like, I'm not an X-Men reader. So this That's was okay. new for me. I didn't I didn't grow up reading until I was comic books until I was like maybe in middle school, but I was always like into superheroes. Like watching Justice League, Teen Titans. I was a big DC person. Honestly, I was probably like, used to be like super pretentious thinking I was better like than everyone because I like DC and Star Trek. And I was too young at the time <laughs> as like a kid to realize you can love them all. You can love Marvel and Star Wars as well. I, when I was in like fifth grade, I got really into DC Teen Legion of Superheroes and that became like my great love at the most comic books I still own today. That's like the only runs I have com completed other than a few Young Avengers stuff. But in high school, like, I still had that passion, but I just wasn't picking up books as much. Also, high school student, 
don't really have that much money on my own. Yeah. But like a lot of people during COVID, I started getting back into comic books. And part of that was with like WandaVision on Disney Plus with hearing oh. Billy and Tommy. I was like, hmm, I want to know more about them because I knew they were in Young Avengers. So I ordered like the Young Avengers um, volume one trade off of Amazon. And now I'm like, went from having 200 comic books in my closet to now there's like, I think 10 short boxes scattered throughout our apartment. <laughs> um, Congratulations and, slash oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so One of it, us. One of us. Getting much more into like all like more into Marvel. Legion of Super is still the first my first love, but then exploring She-Hulk and Avengers, Kamala Khan is Marvel. And since I was already in academia, I was like, oh, I can study this in addition to my research. So I like having like one foot in both fields. And it also keeps me entertained because I would get bored if I just focused on one thing all the time. I also started teaching like this summer and my students have had to enjoy me talking to them about superheroes and signing comic books in their classes. So awesome. That is my story to date. Well, let me talk to you a little bit about, I don't know, sort of the nature of some of your research on comics. Like what are some of the properties of this form? Like whether it's sort of like formal stuff, whether it's representational stuff, like what are you primarily sort of interested in, in thinking about with comics when you incorporate them into your teaching and your research? What makes you what makes you passionate about them from an academic standpoint? Research wise, I am starting to focus more on Legion of Superheroes since that was my pride and joy, and really curious of how since that team has been published since 1958, how you can see the changing racial and gender and sexuality po politics in mm -hmm. mainstream society represented in a team that isn't as necessarily in your face in the same way that like X-Men or Justice League are because they take place a thousand years in the future. But yeah. even in this future world, you can still see like the gender stereotypes, racial stereotypes playing out, but how those also change as we move forward into the 2020s. And what really got me interested in that is um, the Bendis run hasn't been the most well accepted of Legion. Um, and I've heard this. Yeah. So I started like thinking like, okay, like how did Legion actually appear to people as it was being published earlier? And for my students, I really like, because I'm a graduate student, so I teach the survey classes. I've taught intro to Texas history, U.S. history since 1877. And I really like, especially once we get to World War II, comic books, great example of wartime propaganda and showing yeah. students, like, that was like one of their main assignments that they did is analyzing comic books as a primary source. And like, what values can you get from society? What is the message? What stereotypes might they be using? Because there's lots of great um, covers that come from that time, but there's also a lot of covers that make you very uncomfortable with how they portray Japanese and German citizens. Oh, yes, absolutely. All yes, of the so... Marvel All Winners Squad titles. Oh, man, that is a treasure trove <laughs> of offensiveness. Dive into those if you haven't. Or don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Save yourself. <laughs> Take our word for it. Maybe don't. And they really like, because, I mean, I give them some more traditional, like, document stuff, too. But that's, like, a way to engage them in history that makes it a bit more mm -hmm. interesting. Because even if these aren't kids that are reading comic books, especially these, like, 18-year-olds, they've grown up with, like, the MCU and the background. Like, they're at least familiar with a lot of these characters. So it's able, they're able to relate to it more. Yeah, for sure. I'd like, I think we all find that kind of an affecting teaching tool a lot of the time. And I applaud you for doing the sneaky thing of, like, it's not necessarily a comics course, but work in the comics 
comics in any way because that's the way you do it. You've already mastered that crucial technique of being a comic scholar. I love their it. Final, <laughs> their final paper, like instead of doing an exam, they had to pick like from a list of 15 graphic narratives on U.S. history and like write a paper about it and connect it to our class materials. Some of them were like, I was hesitant, but I ended up liking this. So I'll take that's that. That's the best you can ask for. Yeah, that's the best. I've had one in the past. And I, I don't know why we read a comic book for this class. I like, could have given you a textbook. <laughs> Got plenty. So It's good for your brain. <laughs> that's why. Oh, my goodness. Well, since you're not super familiar with X-Men, let me ask you a little bit more about Legion of Superheroes. You said a few things already about what draws you to that series. But I mean, that's such a fascinating series with such a fascinating history. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what particularly drew you to it. So yeah, what does interest you about that franchise and that team and that space? Well, like, as a kid, I really gravitated a lot towards Brainiac 5 because I was uh, struggling as like an 11, 12 year old with, I really like school, but it's not cool to like school when you're in the fifth and sixth grade. And you kind of helped me like feel more pride in being like the nerdy kid and gaining that confidence. So I really appreciated that. And I also liked like it. I don't think I thought about it as deeply at the time, but that the characters and the, the show I watched in particular, because there was actually a, a really fun Legion of Superheroes cartoon that ran from 2006 to 2008 on like Saturday mornings. And I liked that there was a variety of outfits that the female characters wore, including like there were some like that were like maybe a little bit more revealing, but not like overly and like more and more of their outfits were on par with like what the guys were wearing. And there was a few different girls on the team, like still not like perfect equality, but that really stood out in comparison to like Justice League, where you just had Wonder Woman and Hawkgirl and a couple other cameo appearances throughout. That was really exciting for me because it was cool to see like a uh, female superheroes. There's like more options now, I think, for kids, like when they're looking for merch. But I remember like being in third grade and desperately wanting like Starfire and Raven like on my book bag and my mom was like I can't I can't the best of you gotta get boys and then someone even asked why do you have a boy book bag (laughs) (laughs) so that really I like I appreciated having Saturn Girl and Phantom Girl and Triplicate Girl like they were really cool to me and and I learned later that the team actually at one point they don't spend as much time in the public like the actual publications but when you are given the backstory for a while the team was predominantly woman mm-hmm. and that's something that they're writing in like the early 60s so that really struck out to me even when I was younger and I'm like okay that's not something they would typically do back then I love that calling her triplicate girl rather than triad dates you at a very specific time of, Leg- of Legion <laughs> fandom like I know who you are I know that you believe in triplicate girl not do damsel different character same character very interesting <laughs> they, they did the duo dam like the for in the second season mm-hmm. but since it was a kid's show like they like they saved the third body in the end yeah. <laughs> so, i, I like, don't they, know my yeah. legion well enough to follow along <laughs> with this conversation i've read ramsey deep nerdy <laughs> very good chapter about legion of superheroes um in the new mutants and a smattering of things here and there and that's the best i can do i have a healthy respect with for it from afar <laughs> oh no worries my mission is to make more people know about it <laughs> hey i love it i love it i'm already intrigued um okay i also am intrigued to hear your opinions on this one we're dropping you in at the tail end of <laughs> 
<laughs> this X-Men book with with which you're not familiar, but we have a little bit of a standalone story today, so maybe it won't be too bad because I do feel like although you would think it should be very disorienting being dropped in here, I can't honestly think about which elements of previous continuity are super applicable to this issue because they're just kind of not. So we'll see how we do. We'll see how we do. Let's do an issue summary and I'll come right back to you for your first impressions, Gabrielle. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We definitely wouldn't make fun of you if you came back from vacation wearing a new black leather outfit or refused to quit wearing it, but we might make fun of Kitty Pride. We'll see how we do. In any mm-hmm. case, here's a plot summary. Excalibur number 121 opens with Moira continuing to forget they used to have a friend and teammate destined to become Ahab as she declares she's done mimicking Ahab, but the literary one, in regard to the legacy virus and is taking a sabbatical in the wake of Doug Luck forcibly busting her out of quarantine. While Moira seems surprisingly sanguine about the whole thing, Rain remains furious, telling Doug Luck she'll never forgive him. From there, we jump ahead in time, I think, to Israeli superhero Sabra getting debriefed by her Mossad superiors regarding her recent team-up with Excalibur. From Sabra, we learn that Excalibur has been summoned to Israel to help investigate some strange goings-on in and around Jerusalem that seem to involve everyone's favorite multiple personality possessing reality war Legion. Tempers simmer on the flight as Sabra challenges Kurt's leadership and is generally a bit grumpy toward everybody except Colossus. But when Excalibur arrive at the site of the goings-on, they discover it's actually three of Legion's personalities causing the destruction and that they are hovering between life and death. After some editorially mandated punch-em-ups, Megan is able to conjure a wave of pure placidity that calms the personalities and persuades them to fade off into the afterlife. At the conclusion of the battle, Sabra gives Excalibur a disc of information on a, quote, mutual friend. Sabra also lies to the Mossad, who aren't nuts about mutants, about providing the info to Excalibur, whom she now describes as her friends. As I'm reading this summary, Gabrielle, I'm just like, oh boy, there actually is a lot of continuity here that I wasn't even thinking about being somebody who discusses this book week in and week out. But instead of getting hung up on that, I'm just going to come to you for your first impressions. It can be questions about this issue if you would like. But having jumped in here at Excalibur 121, what are your particular eager to discuss hit me with any thoughts you have okay so like this was quite the interesting issue especially became more interesting since you initially asked me to come on to the podcast with yes the world around us yeah (laughs) um but i i mean i liked how they it was kind of like her flashbacks when her talking to Mossad, and one of the things that stood out to me very early on is sabra is a very controversial character like don't want to hide around that statement no we can definitely talk about that yeah yeah but it stood out to me and that she definitely is someone that cares a lot about israel like she tells nightcrawler at the end like like this is my place these are my people but she's someone that's also being discriminated against by israeli society because not all the Mossad officers are fond of mutants and you can tell their disdain and she tries to call them out on that so that that stood out to me and um, we could maybe talk about like how people can maybe participate in discrimination but also be discriminated against at the same time it was nice to see a little bit of kitty pride because even though i'm not a big x-men person like being both a jewish scholar and someone who's jewish themselves i'm well aware that she's like one of the main 
Jewish superheroes, one of at least one of the ones that regularly like demonstrates their Judaism. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wish that would have been like emphasized more. Like it just felt kind of awkward. Like her and Colossus, like, yep, gotta pull out the Star of David here, yeah. and then she never really has like a deep conversation with Sabra. It seemed like they could do more with that, or they didn't need to like make it known that she was Jewish in that instance. So it's a that's a weird little scene. It's almost like Colossus yeah. is like reminding her that she's Jewish. It's like, hey. <laughs> You're Jewish kitty. Should you have a perspective on these events? And she's like, oh yeah, yeah I guess. I got this necklace on. <laughs> she seemed to have forgotten. She legit seems like, oh, oh, Sabra's Jewish. <laughs> and so am I. I forgot that I put this necklace on this morning. This like very every large day star, David, since like, my that, entire life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's not even a little one. It's like that she's like that she might like just wear all the time and never take off. That is a large charm that she that is the star of David. That's not that's not a small, you know, that's a large star. And she's like, Oh, yeah, I guess I'm wearing this thing. I hadn't considered that when I, you know, <laughs> made this comment a panel ago. It was it was weird. That was a weird moment. Yeah. I was like, that also seems like an uncomfortable piece of jewelry to wear if you're fighting crime. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can like face through objects, but that happens. You can get hit. So they drew it very large. <laughs> I mean it's like three of her fingers. Like it's that's a significant size star. <laughs> Larger than usual, I would say. Yeah. Yes. Some choices were made. Yeah, I mean, how did you feel about, you know, being dropped in with some of these continuity things? Like, were a bunch of these characters new to you, Gabrielle? I knew of some of them, like Nightcrawler, like I said, Kitty, um, and Colossus from other properties, especially, like, I have watched like the old X-Men show. Um, we, we watched it like about a year ago though. My mom says I apparently watched it as a child, but I don't remember this. So <laughs> I would have been like four, like four or five when it was like having its replays on Fox Kids. So like I, had, I knew some of that. I knew a little bit about the island, but I kind of like, I don't fully know what's going on. Like it was still like, I could find it interesting. Like there was enough of a standalone story, but like, I didn't really understand like the, like I didn't have like that build up concern, like of the villain. Like, I mean, I was concerned in a way because like I've been to Jerusalem and I, so I could like imagine that thought. I was like, okay, like, I don't know, like how long have they been fighting these guys? Like what's the whole backstory? But it was an okay issue to, like, read on its own. I wish I, like, knew more of the background, but that could probably be a post-graduate school thing for me. (laughs) Well, as as we always say, if you're you're thinking about diving into Excalibur, we thoroughly recommend starting at the beginning, which is more the ones that we like versus the end, which are not our favorite comics. The the, the quality of this book has taken a definite dive uh, since since issue like well since alan davis left at like well yeah but like since alan davis left at number 67 there there no there have been i would say there have been even in the rob era there are highlights and lowlights and you can listen to Mm -hmm. our episodes and you'll see us discuss them today's issue is very much look we've been canceled this was in the drawer and that is i mean that literally um i I recently was at a talk where i listened to a marvel writer explain that you know fill-in issues are sometimes just stored in drawers for years and they have to be adaptable to the team at any and this feels like someone pulled this out of a drawer made some adaptations which were like hey drop a continuity line in here drop a continuity line in here drop a continuity line in here and go this is 
this is pointless. <laughs> and I, I mean, as if as far as the larger narrative, now I think there's a lot interesting that actually happens in the book. But as far as the larger narrative and saying you know, wish you knew where, I've read all these books. It goes nowhere. It doesn't matter. None of this matters. This book's being canceled in three issues. Fair. So they don't care. It did seem like you could just make and made it like a one-off villain, mm-hmm. like some guy with some issue, and yeah. it would have had the same mm-hmm. end result. Yeah. Villain of the week kind of a thing. Yeah, it's not that I even hate it. Like I think there is something here. I think they try to do something interesting with the least amount of work they could possibly do. Right, like this. Uh, like I actually think the character of of Sabra Sabra has a lot of potential. As you can do some really interesting story. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to look at the at the geopolitical fa- state of Israel in what is it, nineteen ninety eight here, you know, or twenty twenty three is very interesting, and you could tell some kinds of fascinating stories with that. And it's just sort of done with some talking heads on three pages of a comic that are never going to be mentioned again. So like, it just feels very throwaway to me. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. Uh, We'll get more into the history of Sabra in a little bit too. I did, I did go back and read her introductory appearance so I can give us some background on that. But uh, Andrew, how are you feeling? I didn't read Contest of Champions. I read her introduction in Incredible Hulk. Oh, okay. Um, Yes. Yeah. Uh, But Andrew, how are you feeling about this one? Sort of, sort of the same as Mav, but, but to Mav's point and to something I talked about um, on our last episode, just being frustrated that Excalibur is not being given an ending. Mm -hmm. These are things that are still in the ether, right? now unresolved Mm -hmm. threads dangling at this point in time brian founding member of excalibur rachel founding member of excalibur rory this villain they've tried to develop for like 20 issues farron who nobody cares about but still in the either and he will be coming back um kylan still out there cerise still out there Seder nine still out there jamie braddock still out there there are some really cool pieces that deserve at least a winking where are they now at the end of a kind of important series in comics history so to me just to add to what mav's saying like there's, there's this insult to injury kind of thing yeah it's a garbage issue uh it's a throwaway issue it's a backdoor pilot for sabra but like there's so many things it should be doing in my eyes and i've, I've really enjoyed watching rob kind of cultivate his craft as a writer i think he could mm-hmm. do a pretty good job of resolving some of these threads if given the opportunity to do so instead of having to do whatever this is yeah, I mean, all of those complaints are, are certainly fair. I mean, yeah, definitely the interesting part of it for me was just, I mean, it's a specific cultural context, but it is also just the conversation that it lets us have about nationalist superheroes in general, because we have a lot of them mm-hmm. in the Marvel Universe. And mm-hmm. I want to say that they're, I want to say that they're almost always villainous. <laughs> like I feel like that's usually the case. I mean, maybe I'm like just heavily biased towards this notion because of the way that Alpha Flight and Canada are typically handled in Marvel comics, in which we're you consider Alpha Flight. Wow, that's in, uh, that's a fascinating bit to unpack. That like is not this episode, but like <laughs> I, you consider Alpha Flight to be villain. I mean, yes, I get that they disagree with the X Men, but I uh, on you I know think... from time to time, but only in an Avengers kind of disagree with you. To me, I mean, I I I find that a fascinating statement. I think there are villainous ones. Like, I think definitely, oh, I don't know, Red Guardian is often presented yeah. presented as a <laughs> clear villain, right? Um, because Cold War. But I never thought of, I, I never thought of Sabra or Alpha Flight or who, I don't, I mean, I'm trying to think of who the big ones at the time. Captain Britain as the villains so much as just the very simplistic we are trying to show the difference between america the greatest country on the face of the earth and you know other 
nation states from a very simplistic 90s point of view. Oh, this is going to get us too off topic. I do think yeah. that in about 25% of comics, Alpha Flight are villains. Huh. But, uh, I mean, certainly in their early appearances <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and in some yeah, subsequent uh, yeah. appearances, they're usually on the wrong side of sort of uh, geopolitical situations in which they tend <clears throat> to side with the fascist cause, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's a mis- lack of understanding of Canada, I think. Yes. But yeah, we do not spend enough money on our military to uh, have a Weapon X program, but <laughs> that's not <laughs> <laughs> Though, have I stated, have I stated my theory on the pod that if we were going to do that, because, you know, it's usually the Hudson's Bay Company that's after Wolverine. And um, I have a real good story in mind in which his new villain would be Loblaw's CEO, Galen Weston. I feel like that's the person who should be. I see Andrew gets it. He's the person that should be behind everything. Canadians will know what I'm talking about. The ultimate (laughs) Canadian villain. I'm a stupid American. We don't know anybody else's culture. Sorry. That's okay. He owns everything in Canada and is evil ah, and gotcha. a wonderful villain for a kind of like secret empire Canadian version. Anyway, really off topic. I am so sorry. <laughs> um, let's come back to our lovely guest to talk a little bit about Jewish context of superhero comics, because that's something that we have talked about on the pod, you know, in a bunch of previous episodes, particularly Psy, when we had to talk about Nazi Excalibur. Um, fun mm-hmm. times when we had to talk about that you know, for multiple episodes. But I mean, since your interests obviously are in Jewish culture and history, and then you're getting into comic studies as well, I mean, I thought I would ask you a little bit about those interconnections, Gabrielle. And I know that your research doesn't necessarily focus on that specifically, but but yeah, if we were going to talk about, as people often have, about you know superhero comics being an almost like inherently Jewish medium, given sort of some of the context of this of this genre's creation i mean is that sort of a context that you've explored or kind of are interested in exploring yeah i am i haven't like explored it in my own research but it is something that fascinates me so i don't think a lot of people realize it yeah it's just like when i was doing that activity back in october with my students like i was talking to some of them because i'll like walk around i was like oh well captain america might like jack kirby he's jewish and their like minds are like blown by that and how that adds that adds to it because at the time like even though the u.s hadn't entered the war yet like when a lot of these early superheroes captain america and superman are being created people know what hitler is doing especially jewish families a lot of american jews at that time and even today a lot of people have family members across the world but even back then they had stronger connections to family that was still in europe so they were hearing like about family starting to have like be discriminated against more or even be sent off to ghettos or to camps and suddenly not hear a word from a from a brother or or a mother ever again so people in this community were aware of what was going on and for me like that's a very powerful like that adds to the power of a lot of these superheroes early superheroes that they're kind of a way to like protest what's going on and not just in nazi germany like there's lots of anti-semitism in the united states pre-world war ii and even post-war 
And this is a time where lots of Jews are prohibited from entering certain professions. Lots of universities have quotas in place for Jewish students. It wasn't necessarily a friendly place to be Jewish in every part of the United States. Something I do get up to stress in my research is that can differ from region to region. Like even I study a lot of communities in Texas. Northern Texas, there was a lot more anti-Semitism, a lot of more Klan activity compared to South Texas, where Jews found more acceptance. There's a lot of different factors we could talk about that contribute to those differences. Being Jewish, like that adds to like the power when I see those heroes, like that they're a symbol of protest and trying to visualize how you would save people, even though you're not in a position to do so. And trying to persuade the country to feel the way you do. Because there are a lot of people that wonder like, what if, like what if the US had intervened earlier? What if England had intervened earlier? But you never know for sure. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's just so, I mean, it's fascinating and sad the way a lot of that context really isn't still as why. I mean, I feel like for us as superhero scholars, like, of course, we know a lot of that context because we know, you know, the backgrounds of these creators. And like, you could just go down the list and it's like every superhero you've heard of, like pretty much with a few exceptions, like is at least co-created, you know, by someone who's like a first, first or second generation Jewish immigrant. And I mean, it's fascinating, like how strongly that sort of you know influences influences the genre and of course folks like Danny Fingeroth have written some some great books on that subject but like you'll see it come up <laughs> I'm sure I'm 100% sure because I can remember this like you'll see people like tweet stuff about they really think Stan Lee is Christian or something like that and you just be like <laughs> how <laughs> on earth could you miss that? <laughs> like, so it really is the kind of thing where you're just like, boy, there really are people who aren't getting the message on this, which is baffling. But um, switching from Lieber yeah. to Lee really confused them. It was it was it was I a know. clever ploy. <laughs> I just, wow, it's just mind boggling when you run across folks that like you know don't even know the basics of some of that history. But I mean, I don't know. I do want to switch to the context of talking about talking about this one a little bit, but. I'm also interested in exploring, you know, you know, why people aren't sort of aware of that context. I mean, if I had to put you on the spot to have a take on it, Gabrielle, I mean, is it just anti-Semitism? Is it just ignorance? Like, why do you think so many people are still not aware of some of these histories? I think it's a mixture of both. I don't really expect someone that's not interested in like comic books to know like a deep history about it. Like it wasn't like, mm -hmm. like I didn't think less of my students that didn't know that. Superman was created by um, two Jewish guys. Like I didn't, especially like being freshman. But I, I feel like a lot of times it just it gets downplayed, and there's not really like this obvious Jewish element to a lot of people, unless you are Jewish or study Judaism in some way. Like in these characters, one thing I was like reflecting on, like last, not this Hanukkah, but last Hanukkah. Because I was trying to like do like a little fun thing on social media, like oh, highlighting different Jewish characters. I really thought like they don't really play up their Jewishness unless it's important for the story, or it's like a big life celebration, like having a wedding, or like Hanukkah. Like it's just the funsy stuff. And even in that, that seems like the more like here's like what what. The general public knows like to a lot of people hanukkah is the biggest jewish holiday that's not true there's a lot of jokes like 
that if Hanukkah was in June, non-Jews would not know about it. Like yeah. the more important holidays are Rosh Hashanah, <laughs> and Passover. But you don't really see like I can't really think of too like like I think that could have been could be interesting for like a Jewish hero to grapple with. I have to break fast on Yom Kippur because I need to save people, and that's actually a tenet in Judaism. Um, pretty much any law of the Torah can be broken if it's a matter of life and death and because it values saving a life above all else. Mm-hmm. Um, don't really see this Jewish element. So I think it, you forget, like people forget it. And there's also, I feel like a lot of anti-Semitism from like those extremely toxic corners, sometimes a fandom that sure. like kind mm-hmm. of like dilute like what these original stories were about and what was the context they were created in. Yeah, I mean, I always think about, because, you know, I feel like it does relate in a general sense to, you know, some of the ways that I've often tried to get people to sort of rethink superheroes as not just about, you know, a fascistic, like, you know, exercise of power, which is sometimes how people understand them, you know, like the old superheroes are fascist argument versus understanding superhero comics as debates about the nature of power and really more fundamentally about identity and, you know, how you can be powerful in one identity and disempowered in another identity and switching between these identities and how that can be such a powerful metaphor for obviously so many different experiences of difference but you know again when you think about the context of of Superman and Siegel and Schuster and you know that experience of hiding in plain sight of being an immigrant of being an alien of being accepted in one identity and not accepted in another identity it just adds so much richness to this genre that you know we're really doing a disservice to scholarship and you know to our understanding of the superhero genre in a general mainstream context by not being aware of that so it's like unfortunate let's uh let's shift gears a little bit to talk about this comic that we have in front of us and I did want to talk a little bit about the history of Sabra like Sabra is supposed to be making an appearance in the next Captain America movie um and there was controversy Mm -hmm. about that when that was announced some people happy about it some people not happy about it certainly some Palestinian complaints about the nationalist branding of this superhero and how Marvel was going to handle that and there was enough controversy about it that Marvel did sort of release a statement that they're like this character will be different than the comic book character like we're going to be respectful and all of this stuff so clearly it's sort of they're aware of having to tread lightly with some of these things I did just want to mention sort of a couple of things about the intro of the character like what her history is so I mentioned before she first appears in Incredible Hulk 256 from 1981 and writer Bill Mantlo credits Belinda Glass who is actually the first wife of Mark Grunewald um, for the name and concept of the character and you get a bunch of sort of explanations of it in that comic Sabra according to that comic a slang term for a native born Israeli Jew Um, the name also refers to the prickly pear cactus tough on the outside but soft and sweet on the inside and so you get this really heavy-handed characterization of Sabra as prickly but nice if you get to know her they're kind of doing something there (laughs) they think that is really good but um yes as when we get identity politics um in a comic book from 1981 very didactic and heavy-handed and we get this story you know ostensibly about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict basically Hulk befriends this young Arab boy who is then killed by terrorists Sabra thinks the Hulk is in league with the terrorists and then the Hulk actually makes this speech at the end about people fighting (laughs) over different interpretations of this book and then makes Sabra feel bad it's 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 not good 
Um, it's pretty disrespectful to every stakeholder um, in this cultural context. But certainly they were trying to do something with this character. They thought they were doing something very political in introducing this character. And of course, we have, you know, politics being at the center of Sabra's portrayal in this comic. And I was also interested, as Gabrielle mentioned um, earlier, about the ways that Sabra is sort of situated in opposition to sort of her own handlers and her own government, which is consistent sort of with the context of mutants in the Marvel universe, but but was still interesting in terms of, again, this being a nationalist hero. And I mean, maybe that gets us back to that conversation about nationalist heroes and kind of what their place is in Marvel comics. But I wanted to drill down on that a little bit more, you know, the conflict between Sabra's sort of role as a nationalist hero and her identity as a mutant and you know whether we found Sana something meaningful there and I'll open it up to everybody but I, I'll let you take first crack at it Gabrielle because I know you did mention that dynamic earlier you know in terms of this sort of as a representation of some of these political contexts I mean was there anything interesting here or was it sort of like too simplistic, too didactic, too watered down to really be doing anything? It could be a bit simplistic. I think it's really hard to like fairly portray the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because it's one of the most complex issues yeah. out there. We're going to solve and it in 22 yeah. pages of comics. So that's for yeah. sure, but yeah. Um, but I like, could get that hint that she wasn't in full compliance because like she doesn't tell her handlers the full truth one of her handlers is extremely prejudiced against her for being a mutant i really wouldn't even be surprised if the ones that were defending her actually feel the same way and are just saving face so that they can get her to work for them in the future i feel like that could go either way but these were just like one-off background characters for the sake of moving a filler story forward but i know like her name like is that itself has a lot of meaning because Sabra does <laughs> That is a big that is a big deal in like early Israeli history, like those native born Israelis and so like that first it really I think my understanding is it will it is implied to other generations of Israelis that have come come since, but like that first generation. Because there were Jewish immigrants coming typically from Eastern Europe, settling in Palestine beginning in the eighteen eighties. Some of these early attempts at settling went better than others. Lots of people just went home, but Sabra was the term to use for like, oh, this is this is like a new Jew, like hmm. that's reconquering the the Holy Land. I mean also getting its name because it it is that comparison to the cactus. But Sabra also is the Sabra massacre that happens in Lebanon in the early 80s. So even though I think that happens right after her introduction, if I remember correctly, that's still something that changes the meaning and that becomes, so this is a name that can be celebratory for some people, but also a name that invokes pain for others. It was very complex. Uh, But she is one, like, I think Sabra has promise. I'm like, or cautiously optimistic about how they'll handle it in the MCU, but I won't know. (laughs) I'm actually there in theaters it could be a complete disaster in multiple ways but i think there's lots of conversations they could have with her but i do think she has to be upgraded for like what the 2023 Mm -hmm. reality is and that there's that there's a lot of interesting conversations that you could have with her because people can care about their country but also have lots of critiques of their country so you could see like similar dynamics like how steve has dealt with in the mcu of being Mm -hmm. distrustful of the u.s government but still being proud to be an american at the same time so i feel like i could keep going on with a lot of other stuff but i don't want to hog all the conversation 
Oh, so. no, no, no. I um, We get we, to talk about this fabulous comic book. 120 episodes week, so far. So. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, I was, again, I just, I kept thinking about the comparison to Alpha Flight because, of course, that's sort of the nationalist, I mean, that's the nationalist superheroes that I've written about academically. So, of course, I've thought about them more than others. But I did appreciate kind of like the grain of complexity here of there being the suggested sort of adversarial relationship and like you know it's a fantastical intersectionality because we're talking about the context of her being Israeli and Jewish and mutant so I mean one of those is imaginary so it is what it is but still like I did like that grain of complexity which again is not something that you see so much in something like Alpha Flight comics I mean you do have that a little bit with with North Star and Aurora being Quebecois and like mm. maybe Maybe not, you know, being as committed to this to this mission as everybody else, but um, <laughs> uh, but still. Anyway, um, let me open it up to to Andrew and Mav for for some other thoughts. I mean, Andrew, did you find sort of potential in in some of this fantastical intersectionality? Did the politics of this issue sort of strike you as interesting? No, except this sort of an example. <laughs> of how this kind of implodes the, the idea of the nationalistic superhero like i think one of the things they did in order to to represent sabra and her connection to her nationality was specifically to just portray israel as a place of strife and you know what i mean a, yeah. a place that, that needs a superhero the ways in which that sort of hand waves geopolitical issues to me i i think it's like the example of uh the captain america not trusting watergate stuff from the 1970s where it, it really does just sort of lampshade that this is the limit of what these nationalist superheroes can do we have exceeded it uh, and, and therefore we have to kind of present this sort of watered down thing that to me doesn't really have anything interesting to say um so i, I think it's interesting to study for its failures more than its successes i would say yeah i mean yeah that's fair i mean again it's so hard right because we're getting this one-off issue in which you know it's not that we've had like 10 issues to get to know Sabra. I mean, she's appeared in other comics, but still, this has been one of her first appearances in a while. So it's, it's in just a tough to get a decade at on, least. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. I, 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 there might have been others, but she certainly hadn't had a major appearance at this point. In I mean, certainly not throughout the '90s. She's not lighting the world on fire anywhere. It's not like she. It's not like a Sabra recently seen in the pages of Avengers. That's that's not what's yeah. going on here. This is a character that she appears and grab your. Grab your official handbook of the Marvel Universe so you can look her up, kids, because that's what you're going to need. I mean, I was like in conversation with it, though. Like, I mean, it is quite like uh, I mean, she's getting a big push here, though. Like, I mean, in terms of in terms of sort of them foregrounding, you know, that she's a very physically powerful character, you know, that she's a very competent character. And like, then we get the comment at the end with like, you know, she has the leadership conflicts with Kurt. But Kurt is like, hey, if you want to come be co-leader of Excalibur, I know we just met, but like, it's yours. And you're just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, we just met you five minutes ago. And you're just like, yeah, sure become the co-leader i mean i know kitty's been here since forever but like nah <laughs> like, i found that interesting just in terms of trying to sell me on on this character as a as a powerful important character like she's written to be important in this comic i mean the comic is like narrated from her perspective she's telling us about the adventure that she had with excalibur and that choice struck me as interesting but it also speaks to mav's observation earlier right that this is like a story from the drawer right this is a sabra story mm -hmm. that someone happened to have and they threw excalibur in it so that we get an excalibur issue out this month right mm -hmm. it could have been literally anybody and mm -hmm. that that does this not only that just the way it was used in this context for me it recalls been a while 
Excalibur number 59, which is the Black Panther apartheid issue. Um, (laughs) Don't don't bring us back there, (laughs) Matt. Well, but that's the that's the problem, right? Like, I think that I think that comics, particularly given the history of, say, Captain America and the way Captain America, Captain America comics, number one is famously Captain America on the cover, punching Hitler, making a statement. This is this is literally making a statement of, hey, America, neutral country, but our American hero is going to be joining the war months before the United States formally actually does join World War II. It's before Pearl Harbor. It's 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 a whole thing, right? So like that is that is a statement. And I think comics have that potential to make statements like that. I think sometimes it falls flat particularly the less the creator of that particular comic might be vested in the intricacies of the difficult geopolitical situation, which is what this is, right? You're right. We're not going to solve the Israel-Palestine conflict (laughs) that has been going back, like, I don't know, a thousand years, but I can do this in 22 pages, I swear, right? Like like the, the logic there is kind of flawed particularly when you're going to try to do it through metaphor but like what is the metaphor when you're saying hey you're an israeli nationalist but you're also jewish but you're also mutant and what is your real identity and you know mutancy is a is a generic coverall for all others but then in this case the other is actually being foregrounded it, it, it becomes so hard and so confusing and so wait why are we doing this again? What was the message I was supposed to take from this? And that's that's where I was left with it. Like you, like when you're talking about the fact that she's going to appear in Captain America, I think it's currently being called New World Order or Brave New World, or who knows? It's going to be, it, it, it's probably going to be renamed again. Also, time of recording, the entire MCU is in shift as of oh, literally yeah. today. So who knows what that movie's going to be? But if you're going to do that story, then. That movie, as I imagined it was written a year ago, if she's in it, is unreleasable in our current geopolitical context, right? Like, you, like if she's a major character, you have to completely revamp who this is because I don't think you want to put your, you know, Israeli nationalist superhero in the forefront of a you know, four four quadrant tentpole film, you know, by Disney in 2024 or 2025. It's just, it it is a bold move, but a fiscally irresponsible one to one who is to a company that is running from the controversy of the Marvels and Ant-Man Quantumania, right? Like, so like if, if that's the world that you're worried about, then I don't, I can't see you doing that. The Gaza Israel conflict is too hot. And I just, I can't see Disney and not that we should be looking to Disney as our cultural lodestone, right? Like that, I, I'm, that's not, that's not their job, but like given what that company is, I just cannot see them moving ahead with this and maybe they shouldn't, you know, (laughs) you know, I mean, like maybe, maybe the smarter move is not to, you know, is not to half-ass it, which is what I feel like this comic tried to do. It tried to like half-ass it in a way that was uncomfortable, if anything. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, what you're sort of getting at is that (laughs) they're probably too conservative of like a media company to take a political stand on any of these things one way or the other. And therefore, this is maybe something they shouldn't weigh into. Yes. Yeah. Not conservative, politic. I mean, yes, also conservatively, politically, but also they're too cautious. Yes. They're like, they're too cautious a company to literally say, like, you cannot take a, you cannot 
be Disney and Disney doesn't own not own Marvel when this comic comes out. That hasn't happened yet. But you can't be Disney and say we are taking the stance that we are pro-Israel. But you also can't be Disney and say we are taking a stance that we are pro-Palestine or barely can you take a stance that we're pro-America like barely. And and so <laughs> like so like they're in a weird spot where, you know, like if you watch that um the 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 in speech to the Falcon and Winter Soldier miniseries mm-hmm. is Sam giving a speech of, you know, the right thing to do is to solve things, but I'm a superhero, not a politician, so you politicians should should solve things. That's like his speech. And it's like you took no stance because literally to take a stance, this is a this that series was arguably about displaced people during geopolitical conflict to where there's a question of, hey, the bad guys are sort of kind of right here and I want to explore that. But the corporation that is Disney can't take that stance. So instead they take a stance of be good. You know, not, I don't want that. <laughs> I just don't want that out of my media here. I just, right before we hopped on the recording, I read this week's, the final issue of Uncanny Spider-Man, you know, the current Nightcrawler book. And it ends with this, I mean, it's a really nice, cute page of like, you know, Curtin, Silver Sable. And he's saying like, you know, you know, the truism of like, there's more good in the world than bad. And you're just like, I mean, I get it. But also like his entire people like suffered a genocide like two weeks ago. <laughs> there's still being like hunted everywhere on earth by sentinels and he's like yeah but like <laughs> more good than bad and i'm like oh really yeah. <laughs> <Is> there... <laughs> i would think that maybe that's a little bit of a too facile political statement in that moment but anyway gabrielle i apologize i think you wanted to jump in a moment ago oh, oh you're good no i was just going to add like 19 like late 90s in israel is a very interesting time like you're in between the first and second intifada like obviously they don't know what's coming when they write this mm-hmm. um we're just like three years after the assassination of yazak rabin uh, resulting from the oslo accords and for a lot of israelis uh, particularly like the older generation they viewed that as okay peace isn't going to happen then like that was mm-hmm. that was like kind of like the moment where okay this the lines have been drawn and there's like a lot of national trauma from that that the country was dealing with at the time and even today like um when i went to israel like when i was in like undergrad we had to do for the program i was on they had to like go down rothschild boulevard in tel aviv which is like their really big street and we had to like ask people different questions and one of them was like how they felt about the assassination and like a lot of the older people were like please get the hell away from me and I'm like, this sounds like really bad. Like, I'm like, hey, can you talk about like the most traumatic event in your yeah. life? Like, to this random kid that you don't know. But please relive like, your trauma for my grade. Yeah, for my grade. Yeah, yeah. Not exactly. even my grade. Like, I'm just, ha- I'm like an American just having fun on my birthright trip. So, like, like that really stood like out to me. Like, just how much this had impacted that country the country and that's not to say like people don't have hope there like lots of lots of people still have hope of like peace happening one day even and even today like in 2023 like there's still people that are working together but it seems like a very like high tension emotional time in the late 90s where people were losing that hope of 
Israelis and Palestinians getting along after grief hope with Arafat and Rabin. So yeah, it's, I don't it's know if I added to the conversation. No, but I thought it needed to be said. It absolutely did. Thank you. Yeah, and I mean, I'm curious about like when this issue was actually written to in some ways, right? Because like like we're saying, like if it was like a fill-in issue that could have been written sort of at any point. I mean, the politics here are almost generic enough that. Mm-hmm it could have fit a lot of different places but like Mm -hmm. yeah bringing that specific context to it like is certainly interesting and i really 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 appreciate it thank you so much for that it um... does have rob as the writer though so like that implies that it would have been written during his tenure because why would he be using like it's not like usually when there's a fill-in issue it's like uh Hey, this issue suddenly written by Tom DeFalco, <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, just like odd, oddly and totally didn't just write this actually in 1984. We swear like that's how fill in issues usually work. And this isn't that it's written by the writer of record, which implies that it's right now. But also it does not seem and, and you know, and there are little bits that, you know, we do briefly deal with like the Douglock rain thing, but so, and the Moira stuff, but it's not really about that. So I don't know, like, I don't know why you would choose this on your way out. <laughs> like this seems like a yeah. big thing to be like, you are you, like you said, Andrew, like there are, there are a billion, you know, hanging <laughs> plot threads. So let's take a field trip is <laughs> weird. Let's um let's go around to some final thoughts and give everybody a chance to kind of either circle back to something or bring up something that we haven't yet gotten a chance to talk about. Um, and I'll give Gabrielle the final word on the comic as we wrap up. But I'll come back around to you first, Andrew. Anything that you would like to circle back to or bring up that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Yeah, I have a couple things. One really brief, just to point out yet again that Megan has a new power and yet again it's one she discovers through the direct direction of a male character Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) putting it into use for her anyway um more interestingly though I kind of wanted to bring up um um, Jamail here who is um one of Legion's uh, um, yes I was wondering if any of any of us would bring that up another problematic thing yes yeah so so he's, he's a very imperfect character and he's based in stereotype but when Claremont created him for the New Mutants in the 1980s, he was trying to do something kind of cool in which essentially his journey is that he's unable to maintain nationalist hatred in the face of human intimacy and compassion. I thought that was kind of cool. Like like, like the core idea of Jamail was kind of cool. So seeing him show up here was interesting, but also I was like, eh, maybe don't drag him into this. Um, but <laughs> I, I did think it was maybe gesturing towards that, that he's the one who's ready to go. You know what I mean? Uh, that he's willing to let go of hatred and all that kind of stuff in order to enter this afterlife in what is essentially a really weird ghost story um so i don't if know you know I'm who just, he is i just wanted to book, point at him <laughs> i mean this book barely tells you who legion is so oh yeah yeah, yeah i mean like <laughs> good luck understanding the intricacies of his multiple identities yeah i, I think at this point they were just i'm sorry i was gonna say i, I think at this point I, I think the editors were just banking on the only people reading excalibur are the x-men obsessives and therefore you don't yeah. have to explain anything to them. <laughs> maybe yeah i could see that mav anything you'd like to circle back to yeah you mentioned it briefly in your write-up or actually well not actually in the write-up you mentioned it before the write-up for this issue and this issue only kitty pride will be shopping from the wolverine madripoor <laughs> collection what the hell is he is she wearing and why like, it would make sense if she was like, hey, I'm going to wear my shield outfit. That's not what this is. It would make sense if she's like like Kurt saying, I miss the X-Men. I'm going back to my X-Men outfit. No, it's not that. And by the way, when she goes back to the, to the X-Men, she will be taking her Excalibur outfit. So it's not that. What this is is, hey, I'm dressing as, you know, Wolverine's stealth 
ninja-ish outfit that he wore in his solo series that I have no reason personally to even be aware of. Even weirder than her wearing it is the fact that no one mentions it. It is not a part of the story at all. It's just that for this issue, we didn't want to draw her in a regular outfit. <laughs> and I don't understand. Doesn't somebody make a backhanded comment about like her fashion? Maybe I'm making that up because I made a joke about it. Maybe it was just me. <laughs> Maybe they do. <laughs> and I just Never. missed it because it, it's not. But like I like I spent the entire issue going, why was this choice made? I mean, like it's just she is and she does wear it next issue. So I should. Um, I, I mean, but like, are, are they just trying to make a new costume happen or there's no acknowledgement? Of, I don't know. I don't I don't understand it. I don't know. I thought it was just supposed to be like, oh, she's like, this is her breakup outfit. You know, she didn't get breakup exactly. bangs. She got the black leather breakup outfit. <laughs> oh, okay, sure. <laughs> Look at Mav's already forgotten about Pete Wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's he's barely mentioned in this. <laughs> I know, I know. We've all forgotten about him. <laughs> like one issue out from that breakup i was just gonna mention the idiocy of moira going on a sabbatical and leaving her quarantine which i realize mm -hmm. there's editorial mandate going on here so it's stupid to complain about it but it's just really funny in context because apparently she was so contagious that doug Locke thought rain was gonna die just by being near moira while moira was wearing a containment suit and yet now she can apparently just go off on a little fun sabbatical all over the world with no ppe whatsoever and it's fine and you're like okay good for you moira you go girl <laughs> mm -hmm. great decisions to be making as a scientist she needs a break yeah. no, fire but... fauci masks are tyranny <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> like like, a, like this made no sense until you know three the last three years that we lived through where i realized oh yeah this is just what people would do i mean but not her i don't know not her <laughs> anyway oh, I, I will come back to you, Gabrielle, for for final words about this issue, if you would like them. Anything that you would like to circle back to or underline or new things that you would like to bring up, the floor is yours to wrap up our discussion. Okay, perfect. So I have like two final thoughts. I'm going to like flip them around just because you were talking about the outfit. So mm -hmm. I'm going to move into Sabra's outfit because I thought Perfect. it was pretty interesting. Um, I don't love every outfit that I, like when I was like doing some research on her, I didn't love every single incarnation of it. But this one, I really liked that. I mean, it seemed more practical, but it also like was really invoking like biblical narratives like with the head covering. And I feel like that's just very fascinating and like connecting to like what a lot of like zionist work would would do is like trying to emphasize the ancient history of israel and building like trying to make her like its national hero in this case invoke some of like those like ancient matriarchs and like what they might have worn at the time so that was just like something i thought was a little interesting one complaint i had and this probably ties back to how we were talking about like different like nationalist heroes that outside of the u.s are kind of portrayed more negatively is they, they portray sabra as someone that it doesn't know how to work in a team yeah that doesn't make sense to me logically um if she's working for Mossad, just like i know not like not everyone that listens is going to be a fan of Mossad or other intelligence agencies but that's something where you have to be good working in a team even if you're someone that's like going out individually in the field there are a lot of people that you depend on to get. She's career military. She knows how teams yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. Like she could jump into and like, I could see like, oh, like we're not used to working together. So we have like some awkwardness on that. But 
don't know, I sometimes get annoyed of that stereotype of, oh, the lo- like this person, this new person doesn't know how to work in a team when they're from like backgrounds where like, yes, they would know how to work with others when the mission called for it. Mm-hmm. So that's just, I actually, my undergraduate degree was in security intelligence oh, and wow. I decided that was not what for me. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you have many reasons why this would bother you in particular. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's a good insight, though, because that is sort of like just slotting this character into kind of a stereotype in a way that like doesn't necessarily fit what her backstory would you would think be, which is. Yeah. And then they switch immediately and it seems like they work pretty well together. So I'm like, mm. I feel like that was just like trying to make tension where there didn't have yeah. to be tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, to be fair, in the Marvel universe, we always got to fight for a little bit before we team up. But uh, <laughs> still, that that <laughs> trope can get old pretty fast when we've been yeah. reading comics as long as we have. Um, I am just going to wrap up the discussion with, in honor of Jonathan talking to us about toys uh, a few episodes ago, I just wanted to end on a little brief snippet of a letter about toys, which I think also underscores something about the perhaps sad nature of this title at this point in its long journey. So, So this letter is from Ian Friend in the UK. It's just the end of Ian's letter. Do you have any information on the planned Toy Biz series of Excalibur action figures? A lot of us readers collect Toy Biz figures and would love to see an Excalibur series. Thanks again for producing such an amazing book. Hope to hear from you soon. The editorial response reads, The only Excalibur toys in the works are Wolfsbane, a Lockheed packaged with a magic figure, and a Colossus figure, which is already available. So there there you have it. If you want more figures, be sure to write Toy Biz and we'll do the best that we can. And I'm like, oh boy, that's so sad. We have like a Wolfsbane, a Lockheed packaged with magic instead of Kitty and a Colossus and no other of the founding members of Excalibur <laughs> were considered important enough to include in the toy biz line in the late 90s. Two expansion sad. members and the and the sister of an expansion member who's dead, by the way. <laughs> it is weird. It is a weird choice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As we continue to eulogize Excalibur, I just thought I'd spotlight that little tidbit. What must I do now? Kill them? I can tell you nothing. My days are ending. The gods of once are gone. Forever. It's a time for men. It's your time. I need you now. More than ever. No. This is the moment that you must face at last, to be king alone. And you, old friend? Will I see you again? No. (laughs) There are other worlds. This one is done with me. So we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, Gabrielle, thank you so, so, so very much for joining us and having what I thought was a really great conversation about this issue. I'm really, really grateful for it. Um, Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners about what you get up to and whereabouts they can find you. So if you would like folks to find you online, certainly optional, but if you would like folks to find you, whereabouts can folks find you? And is there any past, present, future writing or projects or anything else that you would like to shout out for our listeners before we go so you can always find me uh, currently at the texas a&m university history page 
um, if you're interested in my work. I am graduating next year, so I don't know what Yay. the future holds for awesome. me precisely. So fingers crossed that something neat works out. I share a lot of my comic book stuff on Instagram at um, detective underscore timely underscore action. So if you want to see like me nerding out and I hope to have like a couple different articles out on my research in different journals like for public history and the journal of Arizona history and like I said at the beginning I'm really trying to create my, my Legion of Superheroes paper I presented at Comic Study Society to transform that into something that I can like submit to one of the comic journals in the awesome. foreseeable future gotta finish the dissertation first so Mm-hmm. Yes, that is always the priority, but I very much look forward to that and I will certainly be looking out for it. And yeah, just thank you so, so much again for chatting with us. Thank, mm-hmm. thank you for having me and giving a grad student opportunity to get their voice out there. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> Love doing that. Next, we begin the search for Xavier in Excalibur number 122, appropriately titled The Search Part 1. And we may find more mutants or at least more mutant powers than we bargained for. They've just even given up on the titles at this point. I mean, I miss the days when Rob was when Rob was naming these issues after 90s music. It feels like a, a lifetime ago now. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes you can find those via our website or the box podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via x slash twitter and blue sky at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you mav and andrew for another well-traveled convo thank you gabrielle for guiding us through the journey thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for our truly epic theme song play us out Thank you.